My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words of anguish addressed to God by Jesus of Nazareth as he hangs upon a cross. Think upon that for a moment. Words of grief and agony spoken to God by the one whom Paul calls the image of the invisible God. Words of raw emotion unleashed to God by the one whom Hebrews says, quote, knew no sin. Here at the very top of this sermon, I'd just like us to pause to reflect upon just how profound this moment in Scripture and just how profound these nine words really are. Here in this moment, Christ himself yells out to God, My God, my God! Why have you forsaken me? Now, these words were not original to Jesus, you know. When Jesus cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is quoting directly from Psalm 22, where the psalmist himself cries out these same words to God. Nor do we do well to note, is Psalm 22 the only place in Scripture where we find this kind of raw and honest and seemingly combative approach to prayer? No, it's found all throughout the Scriptures. Coming from folks as familiar as Abraham and Moses, David and Jeremiah, all of them and so many others, wrestling with and questioning God. Questioning, say, where are you, God? Or, why would you allow this, God? Or, when will this end, God? Or, are you really even there at all, God? It's helpful for us as people of faith to know this and to remember this. That is, to know and to remember that the scriptures abound with prayers born of sorrow and anguish. Prayers born of anger and confrontation. It's vital that we know and remember that. Just as it's enormously vital that we as people of faith know and remember that Jesus himself offered to God such anguished and confrontational prayer. My God, my God, he screamed, why have you forsaken me? As we enter today, the second week in Lent, 
As we continue to reckon with our human tendency to try to control things, that is, to try to live as our own creators and sustainers and redeemers, as we do, it's fitting that we turn now in our sermon series on prayer to the genre of prayer known as prayers of lament. And I say this because it's important that we recognize that part of the way that we try to be in control of things as Christians when we look closely is by trying to somehow keep God in our debt, keep God in our good graces. Which when put that way, of course, sounds foolish, sounds ridiculous. Yet if we look closely, this is what we so often do. For we often experience a range of undesirable emotions, anger, bitterness, jealousy, wrath, the list goes on and on. Just as we often experience a range of undesirable thoughts, doubts, uncertainties, insecurities, etc., etc., we just do. And while it's not only normal, but inevitable that we will experience such emotions and thoughts, what we as people of faith nonetheless often think we are supposed to do is hide these from God. Right? That is, be something and somehow less than completely honest about these things with God. And so instead of responding to some heartbreaking, life-altering experience by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Instead, we convince ourselves to say, well, God, I trust this was just part of your plan. As if that somehow comforts us or helps us deal with the pain and the emotions that we're really feeling. Or instead of responding, say, to a new piece of evidence or information that completely topples everything we thought we understood about God and faith and perhaps even the created order itself, instead of responding to such a jarring experience by saying with the disciples, I do believe God, but help thou my unbelief. Instead of confessing these, our honest doubts and questions, we hide them away and hope God doesn't know that we've been wrestling with them. Does any of this sound relatable to you? If so, here's why. That is, here's why we do such an irrational thing. We do it because we think that if we just present to God who we think God wants us to be, that is, we think that if we just hide our real feelings and our real questions and our real doubts and our real emotions, we think that if we'll just do that, then God can't be mad at us and therefore will remain in our debt, meaning God will have no choice then but keep us in his good graces because we've not transgressed we've not challenged we've not questioned we've not been disobedient ergo God ultimately has to keep us in God's good graces 
It's a sophisticated psychological trick, if you really think about it. That we convince ourselves that we might be able not only to hide from God what's really going on inside, but that in our hiding, we will thereby be able to manipulate God into deeming us worthy and acceptable. It's remarkable. And if that's not pathological, if that's not a deeply unhealthy attempt at being in control of things, then gang, I don't know what is. I hope I'm making this point clear. But let me tell you a story to help illustrate the point in case I'm not. Years ago, I had a woman set an appointment to visit with me. And when she arrived, she began right out of the gates by telling me in an upbeat way how wonderful her morning devotional had been, how meaningful it had been for her. But as we began to talk about this morning devotional, her real reason for setting the appointment became increasingly clear. You see, she ultimately told me that her ex-husband, who had left her for another woman, had just the day before announced via Facebook that he and his new wife were expecting a baby. What's more, as much as she and her ex-husband had wanted a child when they were married, they'd been unable. And this was a wound that she had carried ever since. And so here now she learns through Facebook that her ex-husband is having a baby with his new wife, and she's left to process all of these emotions. Now, so as to make the point of this sermon crystal clear, this woman was really feeling an admixture of anger and bitterness and jealousy and doubt and rage, a whole cocktail of all these things, as well she should have been. And moreover, she wasn't just feeling these things toward her ex-husband and his new wife, but even more profoundly, she was feeling them toward God. And thus what she should have been saying, not only to me, her pastor, but directly to God himself, was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But instead of that, do you know what she said to me? She said, I just have to remember that God is in control and that God loves me and that it's all going to be okay. That, she hastened to explain, was what she'd gleaned from her morning devotional. Dear family, hear me say, lest there be no confusion, of course I believe that God is ultimately in control and that God loves us and that in the most ultimate, eternal sense that all is going to be okay, of course I believe those things. I wouldn't be doing what I do if I didn't believe those things. But I also believe, and not only believe, I know that there is no spiritual benefit at all in covering over our real emotions with these cheerful banalities. 
That woman in that moment did not need to hear, yes, God is in control. Didn't need to hear, God loves you. Didn't need to hear, yes, all is going to be okay. Even though all of those things are true. No, instead, what she needed to hear was, you have every right to be angry. You have every right to ask, why me? You have every right to ask, where are you, God? And most importantly, and here's the central point of the sermon, so hang with me closely here. Not only did she need to hear that she had every right to ask those questions and to confess those raw emotions, but moreover, She needed to hear that this was the most biblical and most faithful thing that she could possibly do in the moment. I hope you follow that. This sweet, large-hearted woman needed to hear that in the face of the pain and the trauma she was experiencing, there was nothing faithful at all about approaching God, God who knows her better than she'll ever know herself, with pretty lies about how she believes it's all going to be okay. She didn't believe it was all going to be okay. That was the whole point of coming to see me. It's the whole reason she set the appointment was because she didn't think that it was all going to be okay. And yet out of fear and out of a desire to feel like she was still somehow in control, She felt like she had to hide that fact, both for me and from God. That fact, that is, about why she had really come to visit me in the first place. Okay, let me talk about Forrest Gump for a minute. Now, I'm pretty sure I've used this illustration in a previous sermon, but it's just so good I'm going to use it again. If you'll recall... After Forrest Gump saves Lieutenant Dan in Vietnam, Lieutenant Dan is then forced to live out the rest of his life legless and therefore, in his mind, emasculated. Like his fathers and his grandfathers before him, Lieutenant Dan believed that to fight and even to die on the battlefield was honorable. That to be a decorated and heroic soldier, that this was his destiny. And that this was what would make him a real man. And that this is what would make his life meaningful. Instead, though, he gets consigned to a long life of immobility. Now, no longer a military authority, but just a nameless face in a wheelchair. And he just can't come to grips with it. He's bitter, he's depressed, he's aimless, and he's vengeful. And so it is that he joins Forrest Gump as Forrest's first mate on Forrest's new shrimp boat. Everyone remembers this, right? Okay. With that context in place then, now to the scene in question. Here, Forrest and Lieutenant Dan are now out to sea when suddenly a vicious storm develops. And suddenly the waves are throwing the boat from side to side. And the rain's coming down like bullets. 
Thunders booming and lightning is cutting across the sky. And meanwhile, throughout it all, Lieutenant Dan is sitting atop the ship's mast, utterly exposed to the violence of the storm. And as he sits there being pelted by the rain and battered by the wind, he screams upward at the heavens, You call this a storm? I'll show you a storm. Come on, it's you and me. Y'all remember that? I'm a bad actor. Gary Sinise is better. Here's why I tell you this right now. That woman sitting in my office, she was sitting smack dab in the middle of a storm. She was out at sea and her boat was capsizing. And what she should have been screaming, what she wanted to be screaming was, you call this a storm? I'll show you a storm. Because that's what she was really feeling. Yet that's not at all what she was saying. For unlike Lieutenant Dan, she didn't have the willingness and the courage yet to tell God what she was really thinking. And here now is the tragic part of this story. Because she, unlike Lieutenant Dan, wasn't willing yet to tell God what she was really thinking. She went on for far too long, deprived of the peace that Lieutenant Dan ultimately received in response to his honest wrestling. Oh, what peace we often forfeit, we just sang. Because do you remember the end of the movie? Remember the final scene in which we see Force and Lieutenant Dan together on the boat? Remember that? After years of venting his anger with God, after years of questioning why things had happened to him the way they did and why the world was so replete with unfairness and injustice, that is, after years of wrestling with God, finally one afternoon, once again sitting on their shrimping boat, this time, however, the sun shining brightly above them. Finally, this day, Lieutenant Dan looks to Forrest and he says, Forrest, I never thanked you for saving my life. And then he stares into Forrest's eyes to ensure that Forrest understands what he's trying to communicate, which is that he's no longer bitter, which is that he's found a way to love life again, which is that he's made it through the darkness and has somehow come out stronger on the other side. Here in this moment, he stares into Forrest's eyes to ensure that Forrest understands all of this, and then he falls back into the ocean and he goes under. And then he comes back up. It's a scene deeply symbolic of Christian baptism. And here's how that scene concludes. As we, the viewers, watch Lieutenant Dan floating on his back and staring up at a brilliant sky. We hear Forrest as the narrator say, though he never said it. I believe Lieutenant Dan made his peace with God.
My God, my God, Jesus screams, why have you forsaken me? Dear family, if Jesus can ask it, we can all ask it. Why have you done this to me? Why have you put me through this, Moses asks. Dear family, if Moses can ask it, we also can ask it. I want to believe God, but I can't. Help me believe. Dear family, if Thomas can say it, we can all say it. Each of these prayers, each of these honest expressions of hurt and pain and doubt, these are called prayers of lamentation. And they can be found all throughout the Bible. They're everywhere. Everywhere. Nonetheless, we as people of faith still, till, still tend to think, however, that the only prayers that we can offer to God, that the only emotions that we can faithfully come to God with are prayers of thanksgiving or humble supplication. During this second week in Lent, let us unlearn this bad and unbiblical theology. During this second week in Lent, let us remember that prayers of lament are every bit as faithful as prayers of thanksgiving and of humble supplication. During this second week in Lent, let us remember that the name from which our very faith derived, the name given by God to Jacob himself, the name Israel, let us remember that this literally means wrestles with God. Dear family, of course God desires our thanksgiving and our praise. And of course, God desires our prayers of humble supplication. And of course, God wants us to trust that we are loved and that in the long run, all will be okay. Of course, all of this. But God also expects us to confess honestly and vulnerably and viscerally our feelings and our emotions and our questions when things are not okay. To withhold such honest prayer is itself a form of unfaithfulness. A form of hiding our truest selves from God so as to keep ourselves hopefully in God's good graces. And this robs us of the blessing that comes with wrestling. Remember... In Genesis, Jacob isn't named Israel until he has wrestled with God. Until. Meaning, he doesn't become the namesake of our faith despite his striving with God. He becomes the namesake of our faith because he did strive with God. It's been a long sermon and people's phones are ringing, I know, so let me conclude by saying this. Eventually, after many more times of meeting together and talking together and reasoning together and praying together, 
That kind, large-hearted woman broke down and admitted to me that which I knew from the first was patently obvious. She hated her ex-husband. That she hated his new wife. And that against her deepest will, she hated that new baby. And that she was incensed with God for letting all of it happen. And moreover, she promised me that she would take those same confessions to God, letting God know that if he was indeed in control, then this seemed to be a really awful plan to her mind. And that if he did indeed love her, this seemed to be a really strange way of showing her. And that if things really were going to be okay, things sure did have to get an awful lot better than they presently were. She promised me that she would do this. And then she left. And as time went on, she made fewer and fewer appointments to come and see me. Yet as her visits began to taper off, I soon enough noticed a different trend beginning to take place. She was showing up far more often for Sunday worship. And slowly, she was seeming more and more engaged in it. And then one day, as my sermon concluded and as we stood to sing, It is well with my soul, I happened to notice her not only singing along, but suddenly closing her eyes and finishing the song without ever reopening them. And though she never said it, I believe she made her peace with God. And C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, the protagonist, a queen named Arul, who's been eaten up with bitterness and grievances her whole life, is at the book's end given an audience with the gods, a chance to air her complaints. And here's what she writes just after that experience in her journal. And with this, I close. To say the very thing you really mean, the whole of it, nothing more or less or other than what you really mean, that's the whole art and joy of words. Until that word can be dug out of us, why should God hear the babble that we think we mean? How can God meet us face to face, Lewis writes, till we have faces? Dear family, this second week in Lent, let us come before God with faces. This second week in Lent, let us practice saying the things we really mean. This second week in Lent, let us be willing to strive and wrestle with God. Yes, this second week in Lent, let us relinquish all foolish sense of control and be willing to offer God prayers of lament, remembering that on the other side of every crucifixion lies always the hope of resurrection. Amen.